welcome to Season 2, Episode 1 of the Avalanche Hour Podcast, presented by TAS Gazex, with additional support from Black Diamond Equipment. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. Well, 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 hope you all had a good summer. The days are getting shorter, the nights getting colder, and the first snows have fallen in many mountainous regions of the western U.S. and Canada. It's time to gather and split some firewood, cook some good food, spend time with friends and family, plan your ski vacations, and of course, enroll in some additional avalanche education. If you need help looking for where to sign up for a course, you can find a link from our website at www.theavalanchehour.com I want to give a big shout out to TAS Gazex. Thanks for the support. TAS is the world's leader in remote natural hazard prevention systems and has been implementing solutions for ski resorts, villages, highways, and work sites for more than 20 years. They design, manufacture, install, and maintain not only fixed, but also removable and mobile avalanche control systems. In addition, they can outfit your operation with weather stations, remote sensing avalanche detection systems, and even avalanche fencing solutions. TAS, an avalanche of solutions, a company of MND Group. You can find out more at www.tas.fr. Also, a huge thanks to Black Diamond Equipment and Peeps. Live, ski, repeat. Head on over to BD's website, and you're sure to find something to make your winter better. With everything from beacon shovel probes to airbag packs, skis, and gloves. Black Diamond and Peeps have you covered. It is with a heavy heart that I have to mention two avalanche-related fatalities from the first week of October. Unfortunately, two skiers in southwest Montana triggered an avalanche near the base of Imp Peak, south of Bozeman. Both were caught, one fully buried, one partially buried. The skier that was partially buried was able to dig himself out. Unfortunately, he was unable to locate his partner. The survivor, stricken by grief, took his own life the following day. These folks were renowned outdoor athletes. I have no doubt that they had their wits about them in the mountains and probably felt most at home there. My thoughts and vibes are with the friends and families of Hayden and Inga. Today, we highlight an interview with Bill Nally from the Utah Department of Transportation. Bill is the Highway Avalanche Safety Program Manager. Many of us as backcountry skiers choose to recreate in a hazardous environment. What about the people driving on the highways below the ski runs? 
Did they choose to put themselves in harm's way? Perhaps they are just trying to get to work or take their kids to go skiing. Or maybe they are just driving the delivery truck. These people didn't buy a ticket to the show. Bill, along with his team of forecasters, are in the business of public safety. Throughout our talk, Bill explained some details of the ever-evolving highway avalanche safety plan that UDOT is putting into place. Step into a highway forecaster's shoes as Bill explains their day-to-day operations and some of the challenges that they face. We explore the benefits of remote avalanche control systems, snow sheds, and remote avalanche detection systems. Bill also shares some significant experiences and close calls that he has had within his career. Here we go with Bill Nally. I'd like to welcome Bill Nally to the Avalanche Hour podcast. Welcome, Bill. Thanks for making the time to sit down and talk to us. And uh, once sure, you, thanks for having me. Yeah, why don't you introduce yourself and give us a little bit of your background in the avalanche world, um, some of your past jobs, and some of the things that led you to your current role with Utah Department of Transportation. I started in this avalanche business uh, back when I moved here from New York, and I graduated college, and I wanted to live and work in the mountains, and I came to Utah and uh, quickly made the mountains my school. Instead of going back to graduate school, I decided to just spend time in the mountains. And I got a job pretty quickly as a ski patroller at Solitude. And I learned a lot. Got a crash course in avalanches there, for sure. Uh, And it was a lot of fun. And I decided right away that I wanted to know more about avalanches and snow so that I could ski in the backcountry and do it safely without getting killed. You know, and so I focused on that and I patrolled for about eight years. And then I got an opportunity to work as a highway forecaster. And, and I've been doing that since I think this is year, this will be year 13 for working for UDOT. Um, In between there, before I left uh, being a ski patroller, I started guiding a little bit um, and uh, both human-powered guiding and snowcat guiding, a little bit of heli-guiding. And I studied as much as I could. And I basically learned by way of being on my skis in the mountains all the time. And I still try to do that as much as I can. It seems as if the more I do this work, the less I get to ski out there. But uh, it still puts me in the mountains for work and doing one of the, my favorite things in the world, right? being in the snow. Right. And so what's your, what's your current role with UDOT? So I am the program manager for the state's highway avalanche safety program. And I manage all of the, the uh, individual programs throughout the state and oversee all of the forecasters. Basically. Uh, I have re- uh, taken up, taken back from, uh, my role is actively forecasting avalanches most of the time. And um, now I'm managing those that do. And certainly I'm part of the program everywhere. Uh, but my job is a little bit more um, administrative and working on projects and directing 
the program for the state, which we have some significant avalanche issues and some significant problems that uh, are pretty challenging. So that's what I've been working on specifically lately. And how many avalanche forecasters does UDOT employ? We have uh, 10 full-time forecasters and a number of part-time ones. Mm -hmm. Um, And then our program is um, unique in that we we hire a a whole bunch of – Avalanche technicians, we'll call them, to to both be uh, um, control route leaders and uh, artillery gunners. So we have ten full time forecasters, and then our team is probably about sixty people throughout the state. And we, um, when it comes time to do avalanche control, we will call in all those those other part-time folks and they shoot our guns. So when it's time for us to shoot, they clock out as patrol patrolmen and then clock in as gunners for UDOT. And there's uh, 10 or 15 gunners each at Alta Ski area at, uh, at Snowbird. There's a few at Sundance that shoot the gun down there in Provo Canyon. And then we have 10 or 12, um, Avalanche technicians that run hand hand charge routes up in Powder Mountain that are ski patrollers as well, mm-hmm. and um, a few part time seasonal forecasters spread out between Logan Canyon and Huntington Canyon, and um, <clears throat> and then that's that's the shape the, the face of our program, and <clears throat> but for the the majority of our work is done with the full time people, which are there's two people down in Provo, which they they look at. Uh, they manage American Fork Canyon as well. And there's two people in Big Cottonwood. And there's five people in Little Cottonwood Canyon. And I'm kind of at large. Right. And how many how many highways are you guys forecasting for and doing avalanche mitigation work for? I'd have to count those. We'll start from the north. There's Logan Canyon. There's Powder Mountain. There's... Big Cottonwood Canyon, Little Cottonwood, American Fork, Provo Canyon. There's a little bit of a threat on Spanish Fork Canyon, but it's very rare. And then there's Daniels Summit or Daniels Canyon, um, Highway 40. And then further south, we get to Huntington Canyon. There's a little bit of a threat in Schofield uh, on the mine road down there. And then um, Cedar Canyon. So I think I lost count there, but that's the majority of it. Right, quite a few. Yeah. But certainly the, the heart of the program is within the Cottonwoods and, and, well, from Provo up to Logan Canyon, I guess. Yeah, for sure. You know, I'd say the heart of it is here in the central Wasatch. Mm-hmm. You, know, you you got to count Provo, too. It's, it's a significant threat down there, but it's less frequent. Um, and um, the main problem that we have here is Little Cottonwood Canyon. It's... Uh, has a long history of um, having some of the most hazardous highway road in in the world, really. Uh, there's a formula that we use to determine the risk or to, to quantify the risk to a motorist on the highway. It's called the Avalanche Hazard Index. And it's a fairly complicated program, uh, or, or sorry, um, formula that looks at all the factors that that, that contribute to risk. The main ones are the, the number of avalanche paths, 
the frequency that they hit the road, um, the speed of the cars that are traveling on it. And the big one really is the number of cars on the road. And Little Cottonwood Canyon has the highest avalanche hazard index that anywhere I know of. We certainly know it it is the highest in North America, but as I've learned about some other places in the world, we don't know of another road that has this high of a number. It's, it's so high. It's off the charts is astronomically high. The numbers, the last time we calculated it in 2006, it was 1,044, which doesn't mean a lot until you look at the scale of it. And the scale starts at zero and it tops out at 150. So that's max and that's extreme um, risk. So it's off the charts. It's totally off the charts and it's, there's nothing out there like it. And the reason it's so high is obviously because there's a lot of avalanche paths and snows a lot and avalanches a lot and the, you know, they make it to the highway. But the main reason is the number of cars. There's uh, the, the number of cars that are on that highway and any given day in the winter, let alone a, a busy day are, it's somewhat, it's growing. It's been growing forever. It's it, it, the number of days that we're at capacity on the highway is increasing. And what that equates to is if there's an avalanche that happens to make it to the highway, that the chances are that much higher that it's going to hit a car. Sure. And that's, that's what the risk is based on. So what we've been trying to do is move towards ways to lower that risk. And it's a significant challenge. It is a really difficult place to manage. It's, we, we, we have a significant avalanche problem, but we also have a significant people management problem. There's not that much, there's not that much room for people to go in that road. It's, it's a, it's a one way or dead end road. You go, you have to drive up and turn around and come back down. There's only one way in and out. And so, uh, our avalanche safety supervisor in Little Cottonwood Canyon, Matt McKee likes to say that you're exposed to that risk twice when you go there right. to come back down. And so we have been trying to find ways to <clears throat> minimize the risk and analyze what we can do in our program to, to be better forecasters and what tools are out there that can help us do that. So recently we dug into our program and looked at every aspect of it and tried to come up with uh, a plan that makes things better. And we were calling it the highway avalanche safety improvement plan. And it basically looks at each area in the Canyon separately. And it uh, it looks at the, each zone, each avalanche zone um, independently of of everything else and determines, we, we looked at it to try to figure out what is it about that zone that makes it difficult for us to, to manage. Some of the areas have bigger <clears throat> avalanche paths and they are monster problems when they make it to the highway, but they don't do it as frequently. Some avalanche paths are small <clears throat> and they do it every time it storms, it makes it to the road. Some of them can hit buildings. Some of them uh, don't have uh, an alternate route. So, you know, we, we, we have to keep that section of the road open, uh, so on and so forth. And we developed a bunch of criteria that, that rates them on a scale, and we can determine which areas are uh, most important to focus our energies on. So once we did that, we ranked them all, and then we looked at each area to determine what is the best way to manage the avalanche threat. And, and Bill, could you talk a little <clears throat> bit about some of the 
the ways in the past, the, the, what, what did the program look like in the past in terms of the mitigation for, for the highway? Sure. Um, cause there's quite a rich history there. There is. Yeah. The, uh, the program that manages that, the avalanches in Little Cottonwood started in around about the late thirties <clears throat> in conjunction with the beginning of Alta ski area when the forest service, um, was managing that risk and they combined it. It was both the managing the risk with the ski area, but then, you know, they got to get people up the road. So they made recommendations to the highways, uh, supervisors, uh, about opening and closing the road. And that was in the late thirties. And then, <clears throat> uh, they quickly realized they had a big problem and, uh, they made it a little bit more formal. And, uh, in the early forties, uh, they hired some regular forecasters and, um, by the late 1940s, we were mid to late 1940s. We were, we were recording regular, uh, weather data, snow and avalanche information from, you know, pretty in, in detail. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we have a long, uh, record of, of the weather and the avalanche events there. Uh, and then in around, and then in the late forties, um, 1949 specifically, uh, a guy named Monty Atwater, uh, came to Little Cottonwood Canyon from the 10th Mountain Division after World War II and decided that artillery might be a really good way of managing the threat. <clears throat> and he had some experience with that in the, in the war and knew of the uh, ability for artillery to, tr- to trigger avalanches and thought it would be a good idea to do it. So uh, he convinced the the Army to let them come up there and shoot avalanches. And it was a slow start, but... They eventually, Monty was shooting the gun himself, and uh, he's quite a prolific character, and uh, and we still use artillery today, and we still use uh, some of the other tools that Monty developed. We like to think of him as the grandfather of modern avalanche science, really. Um, and a- along the way, he attracted some or got some help and attracted some other folks, and uh, Ed LaChapelle kind of began working on the scientific aspect of the science part of, of avalanches. And he worked there also. And we're, our office is basically right out of the same place as where those two guys were working. And our study plot is basically the same place. And we still use the same tools, um, primarily artillery, you know, and, and since that day, we've recognized artillery as being the best way to manage the threat. And we still kind of think it is, um, but it doesn't come without risk. You know, artillery is very accurate. It's a pretty big blast. We can deliver that blast in a starting zone any time of the day, any weather, and we can do it reliably, repeatedly, and it makes avalanche as well, but um, there comes some risk with that too. You know, it shoots a 105 millimeter uh, diameter round of steel encased, you know, steel with uh, explosives in it. And when it blows up, it shoots shrapnel, right? And, it, and I don't think, I think it's a, most people don't understand how far it shoots. I mean, it's designed, it's not designed to make avalanches. It's designed to kill people. Sure. And throw pieces of metal all over it. And it does that. It, I mean, the safe standoff distance for the army is, uh, outside of wartime is 800 meters. So. For that blast, for, for that shrapnel for that blast. Shrapnel, 800 meters. That's, you know, that's a long way that it can travel. And we, we have evidence that it, it travels pretty far. We've never seen it that far, but. But nonetheless, our, one of the biggest challenges that we have right now today in Little Cottonwood is managing, being able to use that tool 
with the number of people that are around. And it's a really popular place, and it's a, it's amazingly it's beautiful, and it's awesome skiing, and it should be popular. But the number of people in the backcountry are it's increasing every year, and the times of day that they like to go skiing is also expanding. And it, it's often the case that when we get up at three o'clock in the morning and begin the efforts to do out do control work by by seven a.m. that we see headlamps dozens of them people are skiing in the dark and they're skiing in the early morning hours and they're getting up walking up the, the ridge in, in, at night <clears throat> and when the light comes up they ski down to their car and go to work mm-hmm. and they can still make it to work by nine so uh, we have to figure out how to still be able to do our job and use explosives uh, and make sure that there's no one in the way. Sure. So the risk of using artillery is, is great, not just to the, the people downrange, but it's also, there's a risk to the gunners as well. So we're looking to alternative ways of doing avalanche control. And we're starting to build infrastructure to help us reduce our dependency on artillery. I, I think that term reduce our dependency is, is key because we, and you know, that, we can't operate without managing those those avalanche paths. And if we were to lose artillery any day, I mean, we wake up tomorrow and there's the army determines there's something wrong with the gun or there's something wrong with the ammunition that we have. They just suspend our program. That's it. We can't shoot. Or if there's an accident with it, someone gets hurt uh, with, you know, one of the gunners gets hurt, once one of the people downrange, or uh, <clears throat> then we're suspended and we can't operate in that canyon without without some way of managing that threat so we're trying to reduce our dependency on it which we're we're, we're going towards the areas that are one the highest risk to the road the highest risk to people down downrange, and the highest risk to you know the, the overall functioning of that canyon in general so so on one hand you have this very effective avalanche mitigation tool and then you have the human factor, you could call it, with all these folks um, dawn patrolling in the canyon, especially the Little Codwood. Um, can you talk a little bit about imposing some closures? How, like, how do you guys get the word out that you're going to be shooting? Right. And then do you close certain parts of the canyon? Just talk a little bit about that closure system. About nine years ago, we started to implement backcountry closures um, in the areas that we're going to shoot. Basically, it's just in Little Cottonwood Canyon. And there are some county and city, basically town ordinances that allow you to close certain pieces of terrain for the in the interest of public safety. So through the town of Alta and Salt Lake County, we're able to enact um, these closures. And it's not, it's not UDOT enacting the closure. We recommend that, that the areas be closed, the county, the governments close the areas, and then we can use explosives. So that was working pretty well. And then things got busier and, uh, it looked, it seemed like we needed to be more specific about the areas that we were shooting because we don't always shoot the whole canyon. Sometimes we have to close and just shoot a certain area. And, um, it's given, depending on the time of day, people are already in there and they don't know whether we're closing it or opening it. Right. So we decided, um, a couple of years ago that we needed to be a little bit more specific and get the information out in a better way. 
and help people understand when and where we're going to do control work. And so we've made significant efforts to try to get that word out in every way we can think of. You know, today there's all sorts of mediums. Obviously, we put it out on our website, which um, is it's improving. The, the format there has improved dramatically. Um, but we'll we have a, a specific Twitter account that our office, our Avalanche office, manages, and we only put information out there for closures related to the backcountry, not necessarily road and highway closures. We're, 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 we want people to go sign up for this um, this Twitter feed if they want to know when we're closing the backcountry. So you can find that at uh, at u dot Abby, and uh, we have an Instagram account account now as well. And so we're putting it out on all the social media that we can think of. And mm-hmm. We're letting the um, all the governments know, and some other places are retweeting all that stuff and putting it out there. And then, um, and then we have locally right there when you're entering the canyon, we have um, signs flashing you, telling you when the closures are, and some to some degree, a little bit of information about where they are. Uh, and we're trying to educate people around here to to know what our program is all about as well, so that. They understand it and understand why we need to do it. Uh, nobody likes when the roads close. I'll tell you, including us. Sure. And what are the? I mean, are you guys finding that people are pretty receptive to that, or, or, or and what are some of the consequences of somebody breaking one of those closures? Well, I think they're pretty receptive in general. Yes, you know, we haven't had an incident where people are blatantly trying to to, to break the closure. Uh, it's more the case that they don't know about it mm-hmm. and or, or they're already or they, up there or they think that, that they're not going to be in the way so they can still go and do what they're doing. Right. Uh, I'm going over here. Uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm skiing off a of gobbler so there, I don't need to worry about the, the control work that's going on low in the Canyon and big cottonwood. But the problem is that when you park your car at one of the trailheads and you get on your skis and you walk away, we don't know where you went. Mm-hmm. So, how can we tell for sure that you're not in the area that we want? So we, we don't know. So we have to close more broad areas for that reason. You know, we can't keep track of where everybody went. So the closures may seem like they're a little bit larger than they need to be, but the reality is that there's just no way around it. We have to figure out uh, how to know for sure that people aren't there. And it's, it, obviously, again, it's not just because we we're worried about making avalan- avalanching people but we're also worried about, you know, hurting them with, with shrapnel. Sure. So, and, and shrapnel can, can travel over ridgelines, right? It can, it can shoot straight up in the air and then lob over into the other side of a ridgeline where you think you're safe. Mm-hmm. So we have to close. Now we've decided that the, that we need to expand the area of that closure based on the, the threat for shrapnel. We've gotten away with it for a long time, I think, because there wasn't as many people out there and, the, you know, odds of hitting someone were less and we can't count on that anymore. Matter of fact, we have to count on that people are going to be there in the place that we don't want them because mm-hmm. they are. You know, they, we find it all the time. You know, so most for the most part, people are um, they're receptive to these closures. But every single control morning we have, we have to stop people from going out right before we're going to shoot. Every single one. Uh, it's become a major part of our job as avalanche forecasters to ride up and down the road in our truck before hours before. We're going to shoot, sw- stopping people from starting their tours. I mean, it it's a little maddening sometimes. We we don't have that much manpower. Sure. And then we have to employ uh, – we, we, the town of Alta employs 
um, a couple people all winter to do just that in the morning. Right. They, they, they get, they get up there early. They start at like three o'clock in the morning and they get in the, their truck and they drive up and down and they look for cars that are coming up and parking and getting out of their car and putting their skins on and they tell them they can't, you know, in, 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 in little cottonwood, there's a, um, we, we have to, we have a significant, um, program to lock people down, get them in buildings and out of the way. It's called interlodge. So when we do control work, we got to have them not in the avalanche pads, but not on the highway, but also not just roaming around in buildings or outside of buildings because uh, a lot of the paths can can hit those areas and threaten those areas. There's 51 buildings in Little Cottonwood Canyon that are threatened by avalanches. Wow. 51. That's very significant. Yeah. So we make sure that people go inside those buildings while we're shooting and they stay in there. And uh, it's enforced by, again, Salt Lake County and uh, the town of Alta and the Alta Marshall um, until we're done. And then they can come out. Uh, and we always have people, stragglers somewhere. So, And that affects the whole highway, right? I mean, a lot of people are just trying to get to work, some of these folks, or, or try and get skiing. And uh, that's going to affect the length of the closure. That's if, right. If you can't clear a, a start zone downrange, right? Yeah, it affects everybody around there. And there's um, it, it not just up there. It affects the people down in the valley. That, mm-hmm. are, that, that are might not even be skiing. They could be in, in their houses waiting to try to get to work. And if you live in that area near the mouth of Little Cottonwood or Big Cottonwood now, the traffic gets backed up so bad that you can't get out of your driveway. Right. And so we're trying to find ways to both relieve that pressure down low outside of the canyon that's trying to get in the canyon and also get the job done up high. And so... And as you've said, you guys don't like closing the road. Nobody likes a highway closure. No, when, when the road's closed, we have we we're we're stressed. You know, yeah. we, we have to figure out how to get it open, and it's it's a high risk time. So, and 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 we're pressured from everyone in, that wants to be up there moving around. So we we don't like it when it's closed. No one likes it when it's closed. Sure. Uh, and I think uh, it closes a lot. Yeah. I mean, in, in the big picture, it's not that much of a percentage of time, probably 1% of the of the daylight hours when people want to be up there, the, the road might have been closed last winter. Uh, but that 1% of time is seriously uh, threatened. And I think another part of our job is, is uh, not just trying to do things to make it so that the avalanches don't happen on the open highway, but then one, if they do, we have to manage it. Right. So now we're we're putting ourselves at risk to try to to, to perform an avalanche rescue in areas that are still um, uh, high hazard. Right? Yeah, very much threatened. Yeah, you know, all, there's a lot of areas where there's multiple paths that hit the same part of the highway. So when one avalanche crosses the road and blocks traffic, there's three or four right next to it that can hit the same line of cars mm-hmm. and. Um, it's a really big challenge to turn those cars away around, get them out of the way, especially cars, buses, big, big, uh, big vehicles, turn them around on a snowy highway, on a mm-hmm. steep snowy highway and get them out of the way and then do the rescue. Right. So we, we try to avoid that at all costs. Absolutely. Um, so you've spoken to some of the challenges using artillery and you've talked a little bit about the highway safety improvement plan. Could you dive a little bit deeper into the process of coming up with that plan and, and some of the changes that you guys are making with some of the infrastructure within Little Conwood? Sure. 
So, like I said, we divided the canyon up into nine different zones, and then we ranked those zones so that we could easily say, well, we're going to try to focus on the Blackjack area or the Hellgate area or the town of Alta or the area above Snowbird, you know, so on and so forth. Why are we going to those areas first? Because they have different important levels of importance. Um, so, um, and then in each area, we looked at every possible way of doing avalanche control or mitigating the threat. So, so there's active avalanche control, which is, you know, doing something about the, the threat, which is we use explosives. We have hand charges. We have artillery. We, we don't use an avalanche much in Little Cottonwood, but, um, we, uh, we have Gazex. Uh, we, there's, there's some other really great tools out there now, like uh, a similar tool, like, like, Gazex Obelix, um, so same thing as Gazex is self-contained. Um, there's um, <clears throat> there's road closures, so there's passive control measures as well. And mm-hmm. Road closures are we use them a lot, but other passive measures are snow fence. There's snow sheds. Uh, there's deflect deflected mounds or deflect berms or stuff like that. Um, and there's ski lifts. Right. We, you could, some, some have argued that by putting a ski lift in, you have skier traffic and that changes the, the avalanche threat. So we looked at all the possible ways to manage the threat and then we ranked which one is best for each zone because they're not all the same. Sure. Um, and we came up with a solution that is our improvement plan, basically. In some areas, we decided that we're not going to change from artillery and it's, artillery is still the best way to manage it for all kinds of reasons. And... Uh, other areas, we've decided that uh, um, Gazex or racks, as we call them, remote avalanche control systems, uh, is the right way to deal with it. Uh, or we we looked at snow fence and we looked at uh, at um, snow sheds, and, and most of the places in the canyon, that's um, not a good idea. You know, we're, we're dealing with. Um, land that's fairly sensitive uh, environmentally. You know, it's a, it's a watershed for Salt Lake City and the Salt Lake Valley. Uh, but it's um, the lower half of the canyon is a wilderness area. So mm-hmm. you're not allowed to build any infrastructure in the wilderness area to date. We've, we've discussed it, but um, it's, uh, it's a fairly significant challenge. Um, but we can't put snow, snow sheds in areas above Snowbird, from Snowbird up, because it just deflects the problem from the highway to somewhere else, to other buildings. Right. It kind of makes it the problem worse. So snow sheds aren't an option from Snowbird up, basically. Um, and then uh, we've looked at snow fence for sure, but we have a couple challenges with snow fence where the, 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 gen, the average snow depths and certainly the maximum snow depths that we might get in Little Cottonwood Canyon might be challenging the ability for snow fence to do its job. You know, it, snow fence isn't, can't get buried. And when it does, two things happen. It, it damages the snow fence, and two, it doesn't, it's not effective anymore. So, um, and then it's unsightly. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's a really beautiful place up there, and we, we want to be careful about what, dis, what, what kind of uh, decisions we make uh, regarding the, the, the canyon as far as how, how it looks and how people, why, why do people come there, you know? They, they don't want to see a bunch of snow fence, I don't think. Right. There's a lot of skiing. Snow fence also, it also, uh, it, it basically makes, it eliminates skiing. Yeah. You know, if you do it right, it needs to be really, uh, really close. Because so, people are skiing in most of these zones, correct? People are skiing in every one of these places. Probably 90% of the areas that we have to manage, they're skiing there. 
nowadays. Um, so we're sensitive to that. And we looked at all these options, basically, and what we determined was some areas are staying the same with artillery, um, and some of them can benefit from alternative methods like racks. And um, we have, before that we looked at, we looked at this program, uh, we began installing racks probably, uh, I guess, 11 or 12 years ago, mm -hmm. actually. Our first Gazex came in about 11 years ago. And um, Can you talk a little bit about how those work? Sure. Gazex is a remote avalanche control system that uses a, a permanent installation in the starting zone. Uh, you, you mount um, a large steel tube, which is the exploder, uh, in the starting zone right where you want to make the blast, and then um, gases are introduced from a separate area, from a control house that holds the, the, the gas farm and then the mixing uh, canisters, the expansion tanks. And it mixes propane and oxygen uh, through gas lines that are run along the mountain to the exploder. Uh, when it has the proper volume in there, the spark goes off and it creates a big explosion without the use of high explosives. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's a big, it's an explosion, but we don't have to store and manage high explosives that way. And it works really well. Uh, it's a big blast. It puts it in the, uh, the right place. Uh, the problem with it, problems associated with it are it's expensive. I mean, one unit, we think, you know, depending on where it is and type of unit you use the, the installation is fairly challenging so it's expensive for that it could be like two hundred thousand dollars for one path right like one 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 shot point right uh, and uh it's uh it's also a installation that's alongside of the mountain so it's subject to uh, malfunction based on its location so you know they work great when they work and they work most of the time but every once in a while they don't and we have to figure out what to do to uh, still manage the, the threat. So um, so Gazex is one tool, and another tool that we have in our arsenal right now is Obelex, which is very similar. It's It mixes two gases. It uses, this Obelex uses hydrogen and oxygen, uh, but it's an all a self-contained unit. It doesn't have to have a control house and gas lines that run um, from there to the exploder. So it has advantages where uh, it, basically you don't have to put personnel you know, it's, a, it's an easier uh, installation. It's just a, basically like a, a small lift tower, mm -hmm. four bolts in the ground and a big, small, you know, small lift tower. And then the Explorer unit gets delivered and positioned on the tower via helicopter. And so when something goes wrong with it or when you need to refill the gas, you fly up to it, grab it, bring it down to the, the ground where it's an uh, a easier environment to work in and then deal with it there. So they're suited for those places that are really inhospitable terrain where you don't want to put personnel. After it's, after it's installed, you don't have to go back there. Really. Sure. Uh, but they, they have a smaller blast mm -hmm. than most of the regular Gazax. So they're not suited for big, wide-open terrain. So they have their place. Um, and uh, most recently, we've been investigating um, other methods like the Wiesen Tower, which is uh, similar to Obelix in that it is... Um, a small footprint with a with a tower, but uh, and and a, and a deployment box that that gets delivered to the tower on via helicopter, but it uses high explosives and um, it opens up its doors, drops a five kilogram charge, it's eleven pounds, and it hangles hang, hang, hangs it on a rope and dangles it in the air uh, at whatever height you want it to be, and blows up. And that's all automated. 
It's all automated, yeah. Right. So we can do it remotely. It's another remote system. But you have high explosives that are stored that's in right. an area that people could potentially get to? Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, we, we have a lot of places where we store explosives sure. you know, all over the place in magazines. And the ATF has specific rules about explosive storage. And up till uh, a month ago, the ATF didn't approve uh, VEASAN storage or VEASAN tower use in the U.S. There's been they, – they have – hundreds of them in, in Europe. And now there are a handful in Canada as well that are being installed this year. Uh, and uh, we just got approval from the ATF to install the first one in the U S and we'll do that this summer. Mm-hmm. And it'll be in place in uh, little Cottonwood Canyon by winter. So we're excited about that. Uh, it, it has a bigger blast uh, radius. It affects a larger area, probably almost double the blast radius of Gazax. And it's a, it's a, the differences are Gazex primarily focuses the blast down and below from, 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 from where the, the explosion is tucked to down below. But the uh, hanging a charge in the air has a 360 degree blast radius and it's a big charge. So we are really excited about looking into that tool and seeing how that fits into our improvement plan. Sure. So we've identified a few areas that we're focusing on first and it, by the end of this summer, we'll have five more Gazex in uh, the Blackjack area, which is between Alta and Snowbird. Uh, it's a permanently closed area, that, a big steep cliff face uh, that nobody skis in, but we still have to manage it because it affects the uh, the Alta bypass road. So uh, there's one section in Little Cottonwood where we, we can actually close the highway and still keep the canyon open. And it's underneath Mount Superior and Hellgate. So you get up to Snowbird, uh, and snowbird's upper uh, superior parking lot and we can close that section of road it's also one of the areas that are most threatened that threaten the highway so uh, when the hazard starts to get high we worry about that place but now we we've had this uh ability for a while but we can close the road there and then divert the traffic onto the bypass road and once we do that the bypass road becomes critical and it's the only way in and out from alta um and uh we have to manage that threat and worry about it more. So the blackjack area was, was rated high on our scale of doing something to manage. In the past, we would use uh, ski patrollers and do a hand charge route, or we would do it ourselves sometimes. And uh, it could take a while, mm-hmm. you know, from leaving the, uh, the top of the route to finishing off your explosives. Sometimes it could take about an hour. Um, it's not that long of a route, but you got to get in there and hang charges on trolleys and, and it just takes time. And we found it really challenging to keep that area closed for an hour. You know, there's condos, there's people that live in condos right near it. There's the snowbird ski area. There's people skiing all over the place. Snowbird has a parking lot basically right below it as well. Um, alongside of the highway, they park a lot of cars um, along, on a enlarged shoulder there that are threatened by the avalanche pads. But um, we found it really hard to keep the road closed for an hour. So now we're putting five gas X there and we'll be able to do the control work in f- less than five minutes. And, and not have added risk to personnel doing hand charge routes, right? That's right. And we'll be able to do it more frequently or uh, more frequently at, at off hours. At peak we'll, sensitivity. Yeah, exactly. The, uh, the most uh, forecasters will tell you the best time to do avalanche control is when it's at peaks right before the peak, the peak of instability. Right. So we don't always have that luxury. Uh, and, and 
we'll be able to do that more often now because um, because of this tool. So so that that's getting taken that's getting finished this year. Um, across the road at Hellgate, we're going to be installing nine more racks there, um, a mixture of Gazex, Obelex, and Vison towers. And um, the next thing on our list is uh, above the town of Alta, from Hellgate up to Grizzly Gulch. Mm-hmm. And at one point, our improvement plan was looking at Gazex, and there's a significant number of Gazex to take care of that problem. There's, uh, it, It's not that many... Uh, that many actual um, road miles there, but there's a lot of paths. There's a lot of little nooks and crannies that can actually make it to the highway. It's a little less frequent that they make it that far, but if we're going to install infrastructure on the mountain, uh, then we can't shoot artillery at it anymore. Mm-hmm. So we have to cover the whole area. Once we start, once we put a Gazex someplace, we can't shoot artillery near it because the shrapnel will destroy it. So we have to take out chunks of terrain that uh, based on the terrain shape, we, we won't, uh, it won't get damaged by the nearby artillery. So when we move into the town, there's no place that we can just put one Gazax here and shoot the next path next to it. So we have to do the whole zone. Unless you're doing a hand route. Well, unless you're doing a hand route, but there's not right now a really good way to manage that, to do that. Yeah. In the middle of a storm, we can't go up there and do a hand, hand control route on Emma Ridge. Right. It's just a really challenging problem. Um, so, and we've never really never done it. Um, so, uh, that's, that's the gist of our plan is that we're, we're, we're going towards areas that are highest risk. They have the most challenging, uh, avalanche problem or their proximity to buildings or prox their, their popularity with backcountry skiers, so on and so forth. Um, and uh, that's the gist of it for right now. We had looked at um, some area down in the mid part of the canyon, which is really, it ranked highest on our uh, priority level, which is in the White Pine area. Um, there's there's one zone in there that historically has caused a lot of issues. That's the, the area that is uh, nearest to the, the road where it is nearest to the starting zone. The, actually, the, the paths go... The, the road goes through the track of a lot of these paths down there, not in the runout zone. So it doesn't take a very big Mid avalanche. Path. Yeah. I mean, even a little avalanche makes it to the road and then there's eight more right next to it that are ready to go. You know, the, so, um, that zone ranked highest and the biggest problem with us, we can't do anything there because it's a wilderness area. Mm. Well, I can't say we can't do anything. We can't build things in the starting zones. We had thought maybe we wanted to put some Obelex up in those starting zones. And, you know, like, like in Blackjack, we'd be able to manage it more frequently, more often. Uh, and uh, we've just come to decide that, that uh, that's not best, the best thing to do. And also not the fight that we want to we fight. We have a significant battle uh, getting approval to, to do anything in a wilderness area. So um, we shifted our focus down there from active avalanche control to passive avalanche control. Um, we had a pretty big incident last year where the natural avalanche hit the open highway there in that white, in the white pine area, in the white pine path, actually, uh, about an hour and a half after we opened the road and did, con- did, did control work. We were, we were battling the storm in February and, um, we had been doing avalanche control for two days. Uh, we started the day before, uh, with 
artillery in that zone and made avalanches pretty much most, most everywhere. And then, um, got it through that next day, but the hazard increased and we had to do a, a control in the afternoon. So we closed the Canyon, the mid part of the Canyon and, uh, shot again in the white pine area and made avalanches. Some of them hit the road. Um, and we opened the road, got people out of the Canyon at the end of the day. Uh, we had to do control work the next morning. So we did control work again in the morning and we again had good results and we felt pretty good about it. You know, we're, we're shooting as much as we can. We're hitting the targets, put making avalanches and we opened the road and an hour and a half after that, a natural avalanche bigger than we've seen throughout the whole cycle came out of white pine and hit the road and no one was in it. Somehow the road was backed up bumper to bumper to all the way down to the mouth. And there was a break in traffic and they didn't wow. anybody. Uh, so we really, um, everybody got lucky there, but through that event, we were reminded, this isn't the first time that the naturals hit the road when it's open, but, uh, we were reminded that even the best method of avalanche control work, the best active avalanche control work is always going to be, uh, leave that, leave that door open for naturals that happen afterwards. You know, we're not in charge of that threat. Mother nature's in charge. We can shoot and shoot and shoot and make avalanches, but if it's not ready to go, it's not gonna until it's ready. So um, we uh, we've decided that the only way to manage that area is to look at passive measures, which include moving the road. Um, that's a big problem, and I don't know if we'll be able to move the road there. Uh, it actually is compounded by if you move the road, there's it's threatened by a different avalanche path on the other side of the road, mm-hmm. a couple of them. But uh, snowsheds are, I think, our latest, uh, we think is the latest, the best thing to do. Um, it's not a new idea to put snowsheds in that zone either. They've been, it's been looked at and talked about for, for decades. Um, but it's expensive. And, sure. Uh, it, it's really surprising how much money they, they cost. They, uh, there's just a massive amount of engineering. There's a massive amount of steel and rebar and, uh, and, uh, and concrete. So we're d- discussing and determining whether we really, really think that's the right thing to do. And, uh, we may be moving towards that there. We're not sure. Uh, it's, it's a, it's a lot of snowshed too. I mean, the snowshed's there all year as well. Mm-hmm. The threat of avalanches is not there all year round. So we're, we're just looking at all the options. How long of a stretch of road is that? Oh, it's about a half a mile stretch. I'd say there's the white pine shoots. There's four main paths there that affect the road. And then there's the white pine path and the little pine path. Uh, there would take three separate snow sheds to cover those areas. One, one white pine shoots, one for white pine, one for little pine. And, um, it, has been looked at in the past. Uh, the last estimate that we had uh, in, uh, let's say, in 2010 dollars was um, 55 million dollars. Wow! <laughs> right, that's a lot of money. Sure, 55 million dollars can build a lot of roads and bridges elsewhere in the state, and uh, we're, you know, competing with with all the other highway pro- highway issues throughout the state. So we're <clears throat> trying to make the case that it's, um, it's the right thing to do there. Right. Um, so that, you know, that's, that's the gist of our plan. Really. 
Bill, I hear uh, you guys have been doing a little bit of work with avalanche detection. Can you talk a little bit about what, sure. what your program is doing with detecting avalanches remotely? Yeah, yeah. Let's just talk about why we even care about detecting avalanches, right? Yeah. You know, first off, um, it uh, we, we want to know when the avalanche cycle has started, when the natural avalanche cycle has started. Um, it, timing is everything. So when you know when one path has has started, then others are going to happen and we can, you know, make our decisions based on that. But it's not that, it's not just uh, being alerted to the, the onset of the instability. It's also when we do avalanche control, we need to know what our results are. And most of the time when we're shooting, it's, it's no visibility. It's during the storm and we can't see what we're doing or it's nighttime, you know? So how do we know if we've made avalanches or not? You know, we, we, if we didn't make any avalanches, it, it changes how we move forward. Mm-hmm. You know, we're still wondering if it's building up and the big one's going to happen. So <clears throat> it gives us uh, um, confirmation of our avalanche control work. And uh, to go further, uh, it also uh, can tell us if we've, we've hit the target, if the, if, if, we, if, the, if the artillery bullet, if the shell hits the, the right target or if it is a dud. Mm-hmm. So we've had... Um, an avalanche detection system now for since 2007, 2006. Um, it's, it uses infrasound. So it's infrasonic avalanche detection system. And we put that in the mid Canyon in that zone at white pine. Uh, it was developed, uh, <clears throat> through a, uh, a research project and a, a private, private, uh, public partnership, um, with the help of the National Science Foundation back in, uh, 2005 and 2006. And we've had a system since 2007. And it listens for the sounds that avalanches make. And it's really high-tech and awesome. I, I like to think of it like magic. I mean, it, it hears the sounds that everything makes. I mean, everything makes sound. It makes infrasound. Um, you know, a, a moose walking across the trail moves the air next to it, and it, it can detect that. My arm moving, moving forward across this table, it pushes the air in front of it, and it makes infrasound. Avalanches make infrasound, right? So... The tool, basically, the magic in the tool was fancy programming that could discriminate between the sounds. You know, different sounds, different different things make different types of infrasound. For instance, a plane going by crosses horizontally across the avalanche path, or or a car going by goes you know, you know, intersects the path. But an avalanche goes from top to bottom so the direction of the move the, of the sound as the sound is moving helps us determine whether it's an avalanche or not right so what we, what do these sensors look like on the ground or well they're just little um uh little sensors they're they're encased in a, a steel box and then that's set on the ground in in the fall and then um from each one of those sensors there's a couple of uh really high-tech uh, soaker hose for you using your garden basically mm-hmm. coming out like ears so it helps increase its its um, the, the its ears so you can hear it a little bit better so each array we have three arrays and at, e- at each array there's six sensors on the ground so there's 18 sensors throughout the white pine shoots white pine and little pine area and um, there's also a GPS uh, sensor on the on the tower and, uh, and the data logger. So each sensor knows where it is and it can hear the sound at a different time and then can triangulate where the sound is coming from and where it moves to. So 
it's really an amazing tool. When it, it, it hears, it's doing this constantly, all, every day, all winter. And when it, it determines that there's something that could be an avalanche, it sends us an alert uh, through our phone or email, and we get a text message on our phone with a picture of the avalanche, where it happened, and what path. And it's become, it's so essential in our job. Um, Liam Fitzgerald, uh, my predecessor, the, one of the guys that was managing the threat in Little Codwood for the last 40 years, um, he, before he left, he said that infrasonic avalanche detection system was the most significant advance in forecasting that he's seen in his career. Wow. I mean, it, it's that important. Any forecast team anywhere wants more of this. Yeah. Right. So let's get some more. Right. So that's what we try to do. And to date, there's still only one other system like this in the world. Um, and it is at Teton Pass. And it's a little bit um, uh, smaller of a system. It's only one array. Uh, and so there's nothing else out there anywhere. So we approached the company and we wanted to build, we want more. We asked them to build some more for us. And um, there's a lot of reasons why, but they can't do it anymore. Yeah. So um, it's built on hardware that isn't made anymore, basically. Um, and it takes a lot of sophisticated programming that, that's tuned specifically for the data logger and for the, 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 the infrasonic sensor and even the soaker hose, the porosity of the soaker hose is, is, uh, plays a role in, in how this thing works. And so they, they can't reproduce it without a lot more, without a lot more programming and basically, uh, development. And if we're really bummed about that because we would put it, we want it everywhere. Right. I mean, it's expensive, but we would, we would want it everywhere. It's, it's essential. So, um, we tried to, we've been trying to figure out other ways to do it. And we've been helping, uh, this company develop a radar system to detect avalanches. You know, it's, it's similar, uh, in that it's listening and looking based. It's not listening. It's looking, um, uh, all the time for a change in, in the mountain, you know, basically radar puts out a beam and it bounces back and it, it uh, it measures the, the time it took to go and therefore it can tell the distance that, that away from something. And when a slab avalanche releases or any, any avalanche releases, it changes that distance. Um, and it can determine that, determine that really fast. And, and then, uh, so the, the concept is there and they, uh, we're pretty confident that they can do it. And so they've been testing equipment now for the last two winters and this winter we have a new piece of hardware that they're coming out with and we're pretty hopeful that we're going to have some good results with it would you also be able to clear start zones of people with that would you be able to detect if people are in start zones of avalanches before you're going to control sure yeah yeah we really want them to focus on that as well Uh, it can see any movement yeah it can see any change in distance. So a person moving is easy to, to detect with radar. Uh, it can see uh, a deer moving also, or um, you know, I don't know if it can see an ermine. That's <laughs> but it has really fine resolution. Uh, and so you could tell the difference between an animal and a, a human. We hope so. Yeah, we haven't been able to do that yet, but we're it, it, it's totally feasible. Not that you want animals and avalanches either, but <laughs> no, but um, we want to know the difference. Sure. You know, yeah. we want to tell if it's a, if, if there's a person there, we, we can't do avalanche control work. If there's, you know, sadly, if there's a deer in the way, we, we probably still do avalanche control. So, um, it can also tell, you know, 
if there was someone caught in the avalanche, mm-hmm. if, if, uh, if it sees the avalanche and it sees a car driving on the road, it can tell if it's, if the car got caught. So it has a lot of potential and we're doing, we're, we're trying to help them as much as we can to develop it. This is a lot of pretty amazing technology that you guys are talking about. Um, just in your mind, what do you think some of the pioneers of the avalanche program in Little Cottonwood, uh, what do you think they'd think of this these days? Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, technology can help a lot, and it's definitely improved the way we, we do our jobs, but you can also get lost in it. You can get just overwhelmed with it, information overload. Really, um, I think that they would be leery of all of that because, you know, there's the science aspect to avalanche forecasting, but then there's the art side of it and you need to have both. And I think I have known this about, um, avalanche forecasting right from the, the start. I've been taught by those old school folks that, you know, they, they, they went by feel. They didn't take snow pits very much and they just knew what was going to happen in their areas. And I also embraced the science part of it. And so I, I think you need a good balance between the two and not get all caught up in this technology. It's important and it can help, but you still need to know and feel and, and just get that, that, uh, that patroller's foot. You, know? mm-hmm. uh, you need to have that. You need to, you know, so don't lose sight of that. I think, I think they would say the same thing. I think they probably would shy away from some of that technology <laughs> completely, but uh, I think a good blend Sure. Is the right thing. What, uh, can you just run us through, you know, I think some folks that may listen to this podcast are interested in furthering their avalanche careers as forecasters and whatnot. Can you just give us a glimpse of the daily life of a highway forecaster? You know, um, we've talked a lot about mitigation of avalanches, but how about coming up with that bigger picture and, and forecasting for what you guys think is going to happen? Sure. You know, that it's hard. At its essence, it's simple. You know, you, you spend a lot of time in the mountains and you, you watch the snow from the time it falls from the sky in the, in, the, in the fall to the time it melts away in the spring and goes away. You watch it all the time and you watch it change. And so you get that feel. And that's what we do. We, we wake up early in the morning and um, we look at the weather. You know, we look at what the weather has done overnight. And we record it and we keep accurate records, long-term records for that stuff. And then we look at what's to come. You know, most of us have become amateur weather forecasters as well. Um, there's a lot of really great resources on the internet and uh, with now with trainings that you can, you can learn a lot about what weather does. And you need to know what weather does because it really is the biggest factor in whether avalanches uh, happen or not. So we look at all that stuff and uh, see what's to come. And then we uh, get outside and put our skis on and walk around and, and look at the, the condition of the snow on the mountain and watch how that's changing. You know, uh, that, uh, that's somewhat the fun part of the job. Mm-hmm. And I wish we could do that more. But um, oftentimes we're, we're managing other things. You know, we're, we're, we're maintaining our infrastructure. We're uh, shoveling out the gates, at, you know, that are along the highway. You know, it, it's, uh, there's a lot of other parts of the job. We're cleaning our guns and we're, prepping for the next storm, all those things. But, uh, you know, the general day is wake up, look at the weather, record the weather, look at what's to come, and uh, 
get out there and, and look at the snowpack and watch how it's changing so that when the next storm does come, you know what to expect. You know what the, the snow is doing on the ground and you uh, draw on your, your past experience and you try to try to figure out what this next storm is going to do to it. You know, we always say, all right, how much water is it going to take to, to make this, this, this past slide? And, you know, we, we play that game all the time. And then we adjust, you know, during the storm. Is it really coming in the same way? You know, we can make all the plans you want and say we're going to shut the road at this hour and then the storm comes in earlier and fast and furious and we scramble and make a change. Or it doesn't happen at all and we wake up and we get on the phone and say, go back to bed, everybody. And so that's kind of it. Um, and, uh, and then the other side of our job, I suppose, is when there's not much of an avalanche threat, uh, either in the winter or summer, we're, we're doing things to, to, uh, to be ready for it when there is a threat. You know, we, in the winter, we're, we're managing and maintaining our, uh, our weather stations. We have a big network of remote weather stations around there to, to give us that information, um, uh, weather information. And then, uh, there's significant work in the, in the summer as well, you know, mm-hmm. like, like this stuff, planning and, and building construction projects on the mountain, uh, and to, to, um, maintain our equipment to, um, uh, there's, we, we've got some software database programs that we are working on or developing, you know, there's, there's computer stuff, there's mountain projects, there's all kinds of stuff to do. And, and it's really a great job. I, I love it. I mean, I, I, I can't imagine doing something that I think is, is more fun. I love being in the mountains. I love, uh, having to figure out that avalanche problem. I love having that challenge. It's always a challenge. And the one thing I love about snow is, is the challenge for sure, but is water. It's water basically. Mm -hmm. And it's water. Water is really one of the simplest things that we know as humans, right? It's, it's everywhere. It's part of our bodies. It's part of our environment. It's the simplest thing that we know, but in the same, right. It's also one of the most complex things that we know. Talk to a glaciologist. They'll tell you that the movements of ice are just baffling sometimes. Right. So how can one thing be at the same time, be the simplest and the most complicated thing that we know? That's what I love about snow. It's always changing and it's always presenting you a different challenge. You know, you can never really know everything about the natural environment. And then there's this medium that's snow. that's also really complicated. And I love that challenge. And I love to try to stand there and figure it out. And I feel pretty lucky that I get to do that. Yeah, you are a lucky guy. Any uh, formative stories, experiences in your career, any close calls that have kind of, shaped who you are as an avalanche worker that you'd like to share? I've been pretty lucky in my career that uh, all the mistakes or accidents that I've been involved in are, you know, the consequences were relatively low. And it's important to remember that every single time you have a close call or an accident, that somewhere along the line, a mistake was made, right? Oftentimes more than one. And that's all right, because that's how we learn. And um, I learned early on that I should take advantage of those mistakes and turn them into something good and pay attention to them and learn from them. Don't try to hide from them. Don't try to, you know, not talk about them, but sit there and figure out what you did wrong and, um, or what others in your party did wrong, figure it out 
and learn, make it a learning experience. And I think I learned about snow and avalanches faster that way Mm -hmm. and focused on it. But one in particular, uh, I was with a work partner of mine and we were out doing our thing in the morning and looking, uh, at, at avalanches. And we, we, we were in a fairly remote place, uh, just the two of us. And we were pretty keen on the hazard. We, we knew what was going on. We were tracking this layer of surface horror and, uh, there was basically a foot of snow on top of it. Uh, and we were, we were trying to determine what it would take to, to trigger that surface horror. It was buried. It wasn't going anywhere. And there wasn't, we didn't think there was enough load on there to, to make it happen. And we may have let our guard down because we knew the area really well. We, uh, we knew what we thought we knew what the hazard was. You know, we were tracking it. We were, and um, we knew how to manage it, really, essentially. And uh, we got to the top of the ridge and made our plan loosely to descend. And um, we weren't carrying radios that day because it was such a long walk. We just thought we're not splitting up. What do we need two radios for? You know, it was just to talk to each other. And so we descended. I descended first and. Um, about halfway down, there was a breakover that I knew of. It was steeper. You know, what's it going to take to, to trigger this thing? Either something steeper or some, you know, someplace that's it, that it's got a bigger slab on it. And I hit that zone and I pulled up a little and I ski cut it and triggered a pretty big slab, about a foot deep. And the avalanche geek in me stops, gets my camera out, starts poking around in the layer. And I wasn't wasting a lot of time, but I quickly realized that my partner at the top, didn't know that I triggered an avalanche one, didn't know that I was still on the slope and we hadn't really communicated the, where I was going. And I just, you know, the MO is ski from top to bottom is about 1500 vertical feet. When I pop out of the bottom, he'll, you know, see me and whatever. So right around the time I realized I was probably spending too much time there. I looked up and was hit by this wall of moving snow, you know, just pummeled me. I got just pummeled and I'm mid slope now, probably still, long ways from the bottom and I'm just cartwheeling getting washer you know uh, just just getting pummeled um, and I hit myself in the face I lost my gear you know I just I felt myself coming to a stop and I'm buried I know I'm, I can't I can't see I can I can tell I'm close to the surface but I'm buried and then another wave comes hits me and everything starts moving again and I started they make another couple of uh, strokes and trying to swim and get closer to the surface. And I stop again and I'm on the surface. You know, I wasn't completely buried, but I was, I was partly buried. I had to dig myself out. My skis were stuck. Um, and I was hurt. I hurt my knee. I could tell I hit something. And, uh, all I could think of was that I don't know if my partner triggered that or if what, well, I don't know what, but he doesn't know I'm still here. And if he didn't trigger it, and he's coming down and he could you know, bury me again. So I'm frantically trying to get myself out. And, um, I got myself dug out and I only had one ski and one pole and I just limped off to the side out of the path. And I look up and there comes my partner and he's just, he does still doesn't know, but he triggered the slide at the top and he triggered it in a pocket that wasn't 12 inches deep. That was probably 18 inches deep. And it was a wind roll off to the side of where I skied and it was deeper, you know, it was a pocket that was deeper or a place that you could trigger it. Right. And we overlooked it. Right. We, we got a little complacent and that is a lesson that I learned is that, you know, the avalanche doesn't know that you're an expert 
Uh, Andre Roche, I think, said that. Uh, uh, and it doesn't matter how much experience you have. You have to look at every problem for what it is. And there's always something a little different out there. And try to not lose sight of that. You know, Just because you can't trigger an avalanche here doesn't mean you're not going to find that spot that you can. And we got complacent and almost had a, a bad, bad call. But we learned a lot from it. Right. That's a, that's a pretty educational story. Thanks for sharing that. Well, Bill, I know you're a busy guy and you got a lot going on. You got to go pick up your beautiful daughter later today and hang out with her. And She's turning five. She's oh. going to be five. We're having a birthday party for her on Sunday. And uh, I got to decorate. That's awesome. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down and talk to us and, and give us a glimpse into the day of a life of a highway forecaster and it's really exciting hearing about some of the highway safety improvement plan that you guys have going on in little cottonwood it's a it's pretty complex stuff but um pretty exciting seems like it's going to make a lot uh, maybe not an easier job but um it's going to affect a lot of people in a more positive way hopefully yeah thanks for the opportunity to talk about it yeah um, we really love our jobs and love what we do and uh we want to we want to keep doing it safe and have everybody be safe around us thanks a lot awesome thanks bill cheers cheers thanks for listening today i hope you enjoyed the show special thanks to bill nally for the interview Please rate and review us on iTunes. It really helps out. Check out our website at www.theavalanchehour.com. Order a hat, stickers, and soon-to-come can koozies. It all helps to support the show. Our artwork was produced by Mike T. Thanks, T. Our music today was performed by Poddington Bear and Audio Binger courtesy of freemusicarchive.com and made possible by the Creative Commons license. Tune in next time as we interview Joe Stock, an IFMGA guide and avalanche educator from Alaska. Until then, keep having fun and stay safe out there.